And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, as the case may be, somewhere where you are listening on this rotating globe. I actually saw someone from Mumbai the other night tune in, blinking light in the middle of dark India, except India is not dark. There's a whole bunch of red dots showing that a lot of people listen all over this planet, 190-some countries. Well, this morning or this evening, or this afternoon, we have a very special show. I mean, really amazingly cool. I don't know whether you guys saw the news item earlier in the week. Very, very interesting news item. Do octopi, some of the spelled octopuses, come from outer space? And that's our theme tonight, because I was incredibly fortunate to be able to get hold of the lead scientist in this research going back decades His name is Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh. And unfortunately, I mean, this is one of those good news, bad news things. He said yes right away, but he said it was way too early for him to get up. So we begged and we pleaded and we got down on bended knees and we, you know, sent whatever. And finally he said, okay, I'll get up at six. So we have an hour to kind of talk about other interesting things um, until Chandra... Wick Singh joins us. And at that point, he is going to regale us with an extraordinary history of the concept of panspermia. And I'm not even going to bother trying to define that until uh, Chandra comes on. So in the, in the meantime, I have invited Kelly M., who is a, a very interesting person. In fact, I'm going to just tell you how interesting. Kelly M. loves, she's been on the show many times before. She loves to talk science, history, and stories. She's a contributor to Dr. Farrell's GizaDeathStar.com website. Kelly has a degree focused in history and philosophy of science, economics, and physics. I mean, that's a very interesting panoply right there. Kelly attended Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and earned a certificate in science writing, was an editor of several high-technology publications, is a professional-level musician. She's been holding out on us because... I should obviously be asking for bumper music, bumper music, come on, come on, don't hold out. She's also an aspiring storyteller in using the tools of fiction. Kelly is a board member of Samden Ling, a Buddhist group that practices Nyingma Mayanian Buddhism. And that's all I'm going to do on that. And without further ado, oh, one more thing. She does currently work in the fields of technology and holds patents in personal management and computer security. What an interesting combo. Kelly, welcome to the other side of midnight, or well, I should say welcome back. Uh, it's good to be here, Richard. Well, let's see, where should we begin? We have an hour to kill, and it's going to be much too short to get into all the things that you and I talked about a couple nights ago. Um, let me start at the top. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, everybody, and you click on the graphic tonight for tonight's show with Dr. Chandra Wickrama Singh. That will take you to the – someone's breathing heavy. We, we, we cannot have heavy breathing because that will lead all the younger members of the audience in the wrong direction. So we, we can't have heavy breathing. Um, if you go to that graphic and click on it and then scroll down in Radio with Pictures to My Items, I have a couple, three items here. I've got one talking about the um, uh, new TESS spacecraft, the Exoplanet Hunter that NASA just launched. It just buzzed by the moon. I love these headlines from Yahoo. About 5,000 miles away, actually. And they did that earlier this week so that they can adjust the orbit 
that will be in this kind of lunar synchronous orbit where they are maintained in a stable angle to the Earth-Moon plane. And that will give them a free-fire field of view to view over the next couple of years the entire, well, maybe 90% of the entire sky in an orbit that they've never really practiced on before. And that's uh, the first item up there. Number one, NASA's new exoplanet hunter just buzzed the moon and snapped its first photo. So, Kelly, um, have you been following the, the, the Kepler results of late? Yes, actually. Uh, I have been looking fairly closely at the Kepler results. So what do you anticipate from TESS? Well, I think that we're, you know, there's always two questions. One is, what is, one is, what are they going to find? And then the second question is, what are they going to let us know? You know, so I think that we're going to be seeing, uh, we're going to be seeing the the deeper structure of the galaxy revealed to us for the first time. In terms the, of? The, the number of worlds, the uh, quality of the data that we're getting about those worlds, uh, you know, the structure of, you know, various different star systems. We're going to be seeing more atmospherics. I mean, I think we're going to be seeing, we're going to get the next level of detail that we've, we've been hoping for. See, one of the things that they did tell us about, but of course it didn't come officially, it came as part of the Citizen Scientist Participation Program called Planet Hunters. After the Kepler mission wound down, remember they lost one of the reaction wheels so they couldn't really continue to stare at this region in Lyra uh, slash Cygnus like they had for about four years. They, they had a huge amount of data in the files and it was a group of amateurs participating in um, uh, that Dr. Tabitha Boyjan's group called Planet Hunters that found this bizarre I mean, really, absolutely bizarre signature of so-called uh, Tabby Star. Do you remember that? Yeah, actually, I was thinking about that the other day. Have they ruled out on that? You know, most star systems have a twin. And, you know, that's my understanding anyway. And so the question in my mind is, have they ruled out like a brown dwarf or a really dark star that could be causing that? Well, there's all kinds of models, and none of them fit that category. For one thing, when you look at the mass of the primary star, uh, which is an F-type uh, mass star, a main-sequence star, which means it's about one and a half times more massive than the sun, and it shines much more brightly and is somewhat hotter. Um, if it was orbited by a red dwarf or even a brown dwarf, which would weigh anything from one thousandth to maybe one ten thousandth um, of of the star, it would show up in the gravitational signatures. You would you would see it in of the course. so-called Doppler lines, and they don't see anything like that. Besides, how, there's been all kinds of efforts out there to create models. Models meaning you know um, synthetic solar systems that would match the light curves of this weirdness, and nothing yeah. I've seen. Um, except for some very far out models, which are frankly artificial, seem yeah. to match the data. And so the the other side, you know, what I call the naysayers who say, oh, it can't possibly be artificial. You know, thinking in terms of a Dyson sphere englobing the star with elements causing these deep eclipses. I mean, one of the eclipses went down to 22%. And it's oh also God. it's also been fading. For the last half, uh, full century, 
based on the uh, Harvard uh, Observatory photographic plates by about 20%, give or take. Wow. And this is so anomalous. Well, the, the naysayers, you know, the folks that cannot imagine possibly that A, apropos of our main topic tonight, life cannot originate off the earth, and B, that something like this could be that close because Tabby's star is about 14, 1,500 light years away. And what they're, what they're saying is there must be skillions of these in the galaxy. And the only reason that it was anomalous in the Kepler catalog is because Kepler just stared with its 42 CCDs at this one region of space for four years at about 150,000 stars. So the odds are that out of all that number of stars, almost 200,000, one would be really, really weird. And what they've been projecting is that if um, Tabby's star is just normal, it's what some stars do because they have weird junk orbiting around them. And if they're in the plane and they cross the disk, you will see an eclipse or they call it a transit or an occultation. My bet is that when we get the data from tests in the next couple of years and they've got the 90 percent of the sky covered, we're going to find very, very few, if any, other tabby-like stars. Yeah. What I do you agree. think? I agree. I asked to go back and ask the question, you know, uh, everyone's like, well, you know, there, there can't be life in the universe other than ours, but the fact is that we exist, right? Mm-hmm. So we are evidence for the fact that that's not really true. You know, it's sort of a a logical flaw in the argument that we are here and we we do we we are out there so to speak and so you know the question is would we build a dyson sphere you know around our star if we could and the answer is we probably would because of our hunger for energy i'm not so sure in fact i don't think the structures and i really think because there's a whole bunch of mathematics that's buried in Again, citizen science analysis. This is spread across the web and around the world, and it's gone viral. And I am tapped into those you know, those uh, chat you know uh, logs where they're talking about this stuff all the time. There's some very very elegant mathematical analyses, not coming out of Yale, not coming out of Tappet and her group, the so-called professionals, but out of the amateur community. And what they found are a stunning set of mathematical correlations. Indicating, <clears throat> drum roll please, tetrahedral <laughs> geometry. Oh my God. And that I posted in this PowerPoint that we did uh, some months ago that actually just been kind of sent around to some of the membership. Uh, Kintia, did we ever send that to the membership or did we keep that quiet for the time being? I, I forget. Kintia, are you there? Just unmuting, okay, yes. There we you are. Sent- Yes, we did send it to the membership. Oh, okay. okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, buried in there are some stunning mathematics with some really cool graphics indicating that whatever is orbiting Tabby star is creating multiple redundant but independent tetrahedral patterns. Now, what are the odds, Kelly, of that? Zero. Exactly. So one of the tests is going to be, and of course, science is always about tests, prediction and tests. You know, without science uh, predictions, you don't have a science. I'm making is that Tabby's signature, the bizarre weird light curves of Tabby's star, are not going to be really replicated except maybe once or twice of the millions of potential candidates that TESS is going to look at 
in the next couple of years. I, I, I think it would be very unlikely that we'll see another one like that. Moving on then, because I'm not going to tell you what I think is orbiting Tabby Star until we talk about the next story. Item number two in my hit parade tonight in Richard's Items in, in Radio Pictures, I have this really, really cool time-lapse video of the Kilauea slow-motion eruption in Hawaii. It's not going away. It's getting stronger. If you click on it, you can see a several-hour sequence, including a sequence that occurred just before dawn, around 4, 4.30, I think, local time, where it shot material up to something like 30,000 feet. And it's, right. it's now tossing boulders the size of refrigerators uh, several hundred feet into the air, and they're coming back down. So uh, this is part of a kind of a global energization. Is that a word? Well, okay. And you were going to kind of look in to see what's going on on the rest of the planet. Did, were you able to do that? Yes, I was. You know, uh, there's a great... Uh, you know, YouTube uh, video blogger named Dutch Sense. Oh, yeah, I covers, know him. Yeah, who covers, he'd be an interesting guest some night. So it covers the whole. That's uh, a great idea. That's a super yeah. idea. Keith, uh, Keith, Cynthia, uh, um, please make a note of that. And, uh, and what he's been talking about is like over the last several years, uh, from 2011, he noticed that the, the, uh, the amount of lava or magma in the, the pool of that volcano was like dripping over the top and then it went down into the, it, it disappeared thousands of feet down inside the crater. And he said that, you know, he was, he, he knew that there was going to be a major quake somewhere in the Western Pacific and he was predicting it would be a 9.0. And of course on 3.11 we had the, the, uh, the quake off the coast of Japan that led to the Fukushima disaster. And he says that he's noticing the same pattern taking place out of Kilauea, where the, the magma pool is dropping down thousands of feet uh, into the crater. There's eruptions, but at the same time, the, the, the magma pool is, uh, is acting very strangely. And he's also predicting major quakes along the western Pacific plate again. And if you look at Dutch Sense's website, you can see that the, the he show he, he describes earthquakes in a very interesting way. He describes them as sort of flows. So you have a major quake, a deep quake over here, and then you have reaction quakes taking place along the faults and along the plate lines uh, as the pressure and and energy uh, you know spreads and and ultimately dissipates. And so we've been seeing you know minor earthquakes in the in the fives and fours all over the place out there, you know, since Kilauea got active. And we've been seeing those uh, quakes move, you know, northward along the Pacific plate uh, past Japan into southern Alaska. So hmm. we're seeing a, a tremendous amount of activity uh, taking place in the Western Pacific right now. So around the and, so-called you know, Ring of Fire. Around the Ring of Fire. And he's, you know, he's, you know, suggesting that, you know, in the Western uh, United States that, you know, at some point this energy is going to be coming this way too. And it's just probably going to be in the four to five to six range for quakes on the, on the uh, Eastern side of the Pacific plate. So, okay. So we'll have you know, Kintia put up that link to Dutch Sinise's website. Uh, Chris put it already in the Skype window. So Kintia, if you would just transpose it to Kelly's items, because he's, he's been very, 
active over many years. Like, for instance, when Fukushima went bluey. Remember, Robin and I were on a cruise ship off the coast of Mexico that night, and I did a live uh, link by satellite with George Norrie on coast. And we actually, uh, that was one of the only nights recently on a ship I actually got seasick. Because what happened is the reflected wave of the uh, tsunami racing across the Pacific at something like 600 miles an hour reflected off the coast of Mexico and interacted with the ship in the most bizarre fashion. And it gave the ship motion. I mean, this is a multi 20,000 ton ship. It gave it this weird kind of corkscrew uh, vibration standing on, on, on the ship. And fortunately, I was able to go to bed and the next morning everything was fine. But I mean, that was really bizarre that we were at sea during that major event. In March of, what was it, 2011, I think? 2011, yeah. Yeah, hmm. yeah so, it was a very, very strange event, for sure, for, uh, for a lot of reasons. Well, let's talk a bit about that, because I went and looked afterwards, and if if you had like a, you know, a huge earthquake, what was the magnitude again? I forget. Well, uh, there have been various estimates, but uh, the generally accepted number is 9.0. Okay. I thought it was up in the nines. Every Richter scale increase is a factor of 10 more energetic than the one below it, right? Right. Okay. So a nine is is catastrophic. However, on land, on Japan, I saw a video showing there was very little, if any, earthquake damage. And all the damage was done by the tsunami that came rushing ashore and almost destroyed the uh, the power plant but ran inland for a mile or two and caused incredible havoc. But the actual earthquake damage seemed not to be there. What, what does that tell you? Yeah, it seemed, it seemed like a, like about a 6.5 on land. I mean, they showed videos of, you know, office buildings and the, you know, the printers aren't even falling off the stands, you know, you know, you'd expect in a 9.0, you'd have, you know, motion side to side motion of like eight feet to, to 20 oh feet. Oh my God. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, hang on. Hang on. Let, let me let me interrupt. Uh, Kanthea's on the site. She says there's a catalog of videos. Which one do we want to link to for this conversation tonight? Hawaii. Okay. Let me go up there and look. I'm seeing one that says Hawaii update. Mauna Loa. Is that it? Five nineteen. Uh, twenty eighteen. That seems pretty current. Is that the one you were looking at? This is live radio, folks. Don't mind us. You know, we're just we're just uh, yeah. Sitting here shooting. Yeah, the five nineteen one. Oh, super, super. Okay. Yeah, and five eighteen was the one, was the first one I looked at. Ah. Oh, here, oh, here's five eighteen, two thousand eighteen earthquakes progressing across Pacific. Oh, now you yeah. know my model that as the physics, the background ether amplifies, you know, dumps information slash energy into the system, that these hotspots, these balanced uh, energy domains like earthquake earthquake vaults and all that they are more likely to be triggered if there's a more energy sloshing around in the system than not so i would imagine there would be a global response if there is in fact a global input from beyond this planet in terms of triggering these geological uh, hotspots yeah, you know, I, I, one of the things I suggested to Dutch since I emailed him and I said, you know, you know, have you ever looked at sort of mundane, you know, technical astrology? 
and tried to you know calculate if there's a correlation between mm. between the the opposition and, and locations of the various planets uh, with respect to uh, the level of earthquake activity that's taking place. But I haven't heard back from him yet. <laughs> but I think that's a very interesting question. Have you been in contact with him before? No, okay. I just did it uh, to. Uh, it recently, because I've been thinking a lot about astrology with respect so to... So, out of the uh, blue, you drop an astrology link on a guy who may freak out when you bring up the term <laughs> astrology. May I ask why you have been interested in astrology? Because I, of course, you know, now have reassessed my whole view of astrology with, you know, torsion field physics. And I think there is such a thing as hyperdimensional astrology, and it's all about alignments and conjunctions and occultations and, and angular, angular separation and all that, that it's modulating this background physics. And the reason it doesn't apply to conception, but it applies at birth, is very simple. It's not until the baby's out of the womb that the shielding effect of the water of the mother's womb allows the clear shot of the physics with the newborn child. Did I lose you? Kelly? Hmm. Can you hear me? Now I can hear you. Okay. You just went away there. Yeah, I know. It was just, you know, I'm just fumbling with the mute tonight. So the, uh, the, when, when we talk about astrology, just make sure we know what, which specific astrology we're talking about. Now it's been Dr. Farrell's position that, that astrology is a, de- a much degraded science, and that it's it's a lot of its underpinnings have been lost through the you know through the the destruction of time, and that you know in in fact that you know I, it, I when I first you know read his work I think it was Grid of the Gods the book The Grid of the Gods mm. he was describing this I was like well that just sounds you know I'm, I'm not convinced because I've been so you know. It, it, propagandically insulated against <laughs> against uh, astrology and then he he remarked that you know the the RCA corporation during World War II was trying to figure out you know why shortwave radio was sometimes you know blisteringly clear and at other times it was vastly interfered with in terms of long distance uh, the various distance and the amount of electromagnetic interference and what they found out is when they looked at the astrology tables, they could predict when shortwave was going to work and when it wouldn't. Yeah, that's a well-known, or at least well-known to, to those of us that follow this yeah. experiment. Right. They actually hired, outside of RCA, they hired in the 50s a solar amateur astronomer. And he literally put a, an observatory on the top of, I think, the RCA building or one of those nearby skyscrapers. And he monitored sunspots and correlated this with with ionospheric conditions and found the most bizarre astrological totally straight technical astrological signs like uh you know trines and <clears throat> sextiles yep. and 90 degrees and oppositions and all that fell right out of the data and he was dumbfounded this this I can't remember the name of the engineer uh, we've actually published this on the Enterprise Mission website several times. But that was the first indication I had that there was a physical, technical basis that you could measure yeah. for an astrological nomenclature and way of speaking. 
and calculate. Right. Right. And if if you if if you live in the the transverse electromagnetic world. And what I mean by that is if you live in the, in the world of radio waves, you know, which kind of travel transverse to Mm -hmm. the ether. Mm -hmm. If you live in that, that that means by the way, folks side to side, not back and forth. Right. And if you live in that particular, you know, uh, model, you know, the idea that, you know, planetary positions could have that kind of impact would, you know, just kind of, kind of falls on deaf ears. Right, but if you look at uh, the you know the the, the uh, astrological relationships of planets, you know the, the measurements of where they are in their position, the the dynamic geometry of their location, uh, and you you and you are understanding that ether physics and which you call hyperdimensional, but the ether physics is actually real. All of a sudden, you know, you start saying to yourself, "Well, wait a minute. There, you know, there's a mechanism. You know, the ether is is uh, has a drag. It has it's compressible. Uh, it has, uh, you know, it's under tremendous amounts of vacuum stress. Right? It's got tremendous amounts of energy, and so all of a sudden, the planets are gliding through this semi-fluid that's energetic and under vast amounts of stress. And you could see that that stress being being focused, uh, you know, by the dynamic geometry of the solar system. I mean, it just makes sense. And then, you know, if you go back into the mists of time, you know, like one of the things Dr. Feltz points out in the gods is if you go back to the mists of time, they never did astrology for individuals. It wasn't like, you know, you know, I'm a Capricorn, I'm, you know, you know, Gemini's my rising sign, anything like that. They were always done, uh, for groups of people or nations or, you know, sort of collections of, of, of consciousness, not, not the individual consciousness. And so, you know, you start thinking about things on a massive scale like earthquakes and you start thinking that astrology is really about, you know, land masses or groups of people that are experiencing these events, you know, and mass like the fate of a king or the fate of a country and you start looking at it from that point of view as well as you know the, the sort of you know the, the transmission mechanism of the ether and you start to see that there's a bigger picture involved and you start to see that you know that because the consciousness underlies all of the things that we're talking about that maybe these forces really do influence things you know in our civilization as well as influencing things on our on our planet like earthquakes. Hmm. His name I think was Nelson. I'm I'm calling Oh yeah, up, that's who it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh John Nelson, John H Nelson, 1951 in March. An engineer for RCA Communications in New York published an article in RCA Review describing a theory for predicting shortwave radio propagation over the North Atlantic. Nelson developed the theory by comparing planetary positions relative to the sun with logs of propagation conditions maintained at RCA at their receiving station at Riverhead there in Long Island. Right, but one of the questions that comes out of that for me is, how does that relate to the sunspot cycle? Because we have this 11-year cycle, and the 11-year cycle doesn't seem to match what's happening in the astrological charts. So that's a mystery for me. Well, I think the 11-year cycle is like half of the 22-year cycle because the full cycle is 22 years when the field of the sun flips back and then flips forward and back again. So a full cycle is 22 years. 
And that, I think, is the conjunctive period between Jupiter and Saturn, if I'm not mistaken. Ah, and so it's there, been a long, there you go. So, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we know all this in a paper. It's somewhere on the Enterprise Mission website. Um, I'll tell you what. We are close to the bottom of the hour. And I want to bring up something really interesting and very incendiary when we come back. A little thing that I asked you to kind of research. And I'm hoping you were able to do it. I don't want to give it away. So without further ado, <clears throat> yes, yes, I want to I want to keep, you know, some secrets here. So we, you know, we have people wanting to come back. Anyway, boys and girls, ladies and germs, as uh, Jimmy Durante used to say, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland, and we shall return. of the other side of midnight be sure to catch our complete live show every saturday and sunday night at 9 p.m pacific midnight eastern for a full three hours of this kind of exploration and be sure to visit the other side of midnight.com as you listen so you can follow our special radio with pictures guest page simultaneously the Kinthea, our hard-working producer specifically prepares to illustrate the topics discussed each show why because there is vital additional information on that Radio with Pictures guest page that I assure you will immeasurably enhance your understanding and enjoyment of what our guests are describing. I mean, would you rather listen to a guest talk about NASA images of ancient artifacts on Mars or simultaneously be able to follow the official NASA images showing you, as you're listening, the ruins? If you'd like to listen at your convenience to all our shows, including our unique Radio with Pictures feature, please visit theothersideofmidnight.com and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. Okay, what do you get with your Club 19.5 membership, besides helping the show literally stay on the air? Well, first of all, you will exclusively, this is not available to the general public, enjoy our enhanced ad-free podcast, courtesy of Chris Bell automatically downloading all the latest The Other Side of Midnight shows directly to your favorite podcast device so you can listen when you want to. Further, as a full Club 19.5 member, you will gain exclusive access to our The Other Side of Midnight 24-7 chat server, what I can't help calling the Open Hailing Frequencies Room, which is available only to members 24-7. Now, during the show, that's where you will find other 19.5 members 
and sometimes even members of the bridge crew, my guests, and even me uh, when I have time. Regardless, you can always relay live questions to me during the show just by going to the open hailing frequencies room. Of course, when we're not on the air with your 19.5 membership, you can visit our club 19.5 radio archives anytime and download all our shows directly to your computer, which will automatically provide you a screen size that allows you to really examine the remarkable images Cynthia posts for each show. Okay, here's where I need to get kind of super serious. Club 19.5 is how our show is currently solely supported. In my hopefully not vain attempt to keep commercials to a minimum, if you're concerned about keeping us on the air, if you want to hear information that has been vetted far more than perhaps any other show, the best way to ensure that is to join Club 19.5 and get your friends and family to join too. And if you don't know already, when I drop by open hailing frequencies, you can even ask me directly what the ultimate meaning is behind 19.5, literally the most exclusive club in the world. Please join me and my interesting guests on this very stream every Saturday and Sunday night at 9 p.m. Pacific, midnight Eastern, and be sure to come back and listen to our live three-hour shows. Thanks for listening, and now, back to the show. Welcome back on this Saturday night on the other side of midnight. You know, that was kind of an interesting segue because I want to talk about 19.5 next. Kelly, you're back with us. Um, The thing I asked you to do was to kind of check out the background to this media hype around the royal wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. And... I want to start off with a couple of interesting things. Someone sent me a a note about this and they said, did you notice that it was a 19.5 wedding? Because in in Europe, you know, the months are listed uh, second and the days are first. So it was May 19th. May is the fifth month. So 19.5. Isn't that special? Now, what folks do not know, and I'll bet you do not know, is that these two very interesting people – they exchanged rings as part of the last night's ceremony or early, early this morning. One of the rings for her was gold. The ring for him is platinum. And did you know that gold and platinum sit straddling 195 atomic mass units? In fact, I was saying to Art for years, he kept asking, why is gold valuable or platinum valuable? It's because it's symbolic, you know. The 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 the, the uh, I think there's actually a gold isotope at 195 exactly, which has a half life of 186 days, and then it decays into platinum. Very wow. interesting, very interesting indeed. So, the the thing I tasked you with your mission, should you have chosen to accept it, as far as I know, and this may be urban lore, and it may not. You're going to tell me if I'm right or not. Every American president elected up until Donald Trump 
has somehow been connected through relationship to the royal family. Is that true or is that not true? I have heard that and I did look that up. And the question is that some of them are related to King John, which was the Plantagenet line of the English throne. And of course, the the Saxe-Coburgs, the House of Windsor, is a very different line. And uh, in fact, there is an enormous statistically, you know, overwhelming relationship, even if it may not be, you know, 100%. Well, then you have to ask the question, how the hell is that arranged? I mean, supposedly we have elections where people are put up and they're, you know, voted up or down, that kind of thing. And it goes back, you know, a couple of centuries. How can the overwhelming majority of American presidents be related to whoever holds the throne or held the throne in, in England? Well, we were, you know, founded, you know, uh, as a result of uh, the English colonies, and even after the revolution, you know, there was a, there was a long-standing blood and culture relationship that existed after the revolution. Uh, and you know, today we're sort of raised the idea, yeah, the English are gone and they went home, and we've been on our own ever since. And you know, if you really dig into the history, you find out that's not really true, very much true at all. That you know, the the English relationship with the United States is very, very deep, uh, has many uh, esoteric qualities to it, has many legal, like for example. Uh, You know, there's a British company that, you know, manages much of the United States patent system. There's a, uh, the the Bar Association is the British Attorney Registry. So uh, the, you know, the Bar Association is, uh, is related to the English legal system. Uh, in, in in between the United States and England, and uh, you know, there's lots of uh, you know moneyed interests uh, of the you know founding families and the big wealth families in New York that you know built their uh, their fortunes after the war, uh, who were you know entirely you know part of that uh, post English culture in the United States, and so the idea that you know that you know we we went off on our own and we haven't looked back is just fundamentally and factually completely untrue Hmm. so does it just statistically account for the fact that you had a lot of english people that came here and migrated and colonized and were living here so if you're picking candidates from a gene pool that comes a lot from england the odds are you're going to have members of the family somehow intertwined yeah well the the idea is that you know they they, there's a there's not only our own cultural uh, culture and civilization, but there's also the individual family cultures, and those individual family cultures were always tied to to, to the you know Anglo-Saxon uh, culture, and when they make decisions about who marries who or who gets a job in their corporation, they're looking for people that have those uh, those connections that have the, either the bloodline or service to the bloodline in, 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 so, so that has been transmitting through the culture since the time of the revolution. Hmm. Well, I, did you have a chance to watch much of the wedding? Cause I actually did. I was working last night and it was on CNN and it was fascinating because uh, that's going to be a kind of a segue pun because the, the the British royals in the upper crust of England wear these weird little hats called fascinators. 
and I didn't quite derive from the commentary whether they, the name comes from the fact that they're fascinating or how they're fastened to the head. But there seemed to be some kind of a fascinator race between who could have the more fascinating fascinator as a kind of a kind of a side effect of this whole spectacle. And then, of course, very cynical people saying, oh, it's the royal family. And, of course, David Icke has his old take on the royal family and the queen and all that. But I was watching these two kids. And, you know, television, remember how, um, uh, who was it who wrote the book, The Camera Never Blinks, um, the successor to Cronkite? Um, oh, darn, I can't think of his name. Anyway, when you watch television, it's really, it, it, it's so revealing because... You know, like there was a, a there was a, a kind of a, a, a shot there of one of the rows looking at Camilla with a side. It went viral, you know, went all over the Internet, that kind of thing. So to, to maintain a pretense of happy naivete for hour after hour after hour when I don't know how many zillion cameras are focused on you. I mean, these two kids look like, A, they're really, really in love and B... This was such a precedent break for the royal family. I mean, remember, they've now invited in as a member of the family a child who is not a pure Caucasian. You know, Meghan Markle is half black, like Barack Obama. And watching them together and watching the precedents they kept breaking, I mean, they had spiritual music that you would have found in a black church, you know, somewhere in Los Angeles in this royal chapel connected to Windsor Castle. I mean, it was fascinating to watch and to watch all the comments about how much Meghan Markle has done in the realm of global political involvement, activism, particularly, you know, women's activism, long before she met Harry. Yeah. I mean, there's one story. Sorry sorry to interrupt, but there's one story I want to put on the record. There apparently is video on Inside Edition of her when she was 11, writing a letter after seeing a commercial, a TV commercial, writing a letter to Procter & Gamble, you know, castigating them at the age of 11 for being so sexist and having only women in the kitchen and selling dishwashers. I guess that was what the, the commercial was supposed to do, you know, dishwashing soap or something. And she wrote a letter to the corporation and they responded by changing the commercial when she was 11. Think about that. What is that trying to tell us? Well, it just tells us that she's, uh, she's a strong-willed person, which, you know, if you're going to be in that you know, environment that she's going to be in, being strong-willed is important, but also potentially risky. So, you know, it may, but, you know, to say that she's, you know, uh, you know, something, an outsider coming in, in, in a way that's true, in a very significant way that's true. But, you know, the fact is that, that Markle is, traces her roots back to, to the Plantagenet, uh, you know, f- uh, group that ran England until around 1500. Oh, She's, really? Uh, I did not know that. Yeah, her, uh, her, she is the, you know, you know, great, to the six, you know, uh, you know, grand, great. She's like, uh, like 11, like 20 uh, generations. I think it's like 20 generations from John Hussey, who was, uh, involved in the court of King Henry the eighth. Hmm. 
And so she's directly related to uh, to one of the most important uh, persons in England at the time of King Henry VIII. And there was a you know a lot of strife between Catholics and Protestants at that time in England, as you know. Mm. And uh, he was he was beheaded by Henry VIII for treason because he apparently was somehow involved in the pilgrimage of, of uh, grace. Uh, that was a revolt that took place in the north of England, uh, where, which was staunchly Catholic. And and uh, you know Henry VIII didn't believe that. That uh, that John Hussey did enough to prevent it or to warn the crown, and apparently after the Pilgrims of Grace, there were like 250 or so people that were that were killed as a result of his suppression of that movement. And one of those people that's killed was, you know, her direct forebear. Uh, and uh, so she traces her roots back to the Plantagenet. This and is John. so interesting because. Again, you know, she she's archetypally now, 21st century, what you think of as the ultimate outsider. But you're telling me, no, the bloodline actually does go back to the ancient rulership of England. Yes, and, and even more interesting, you know, with respect to all the changes that are taking place in the world, you know, the, the sort of split between the Plantagenet and the Saxe-Coburg House of Windsor, you know, the Tudor House versus the house of windsor you know never really healed and there are still some people today that think that you know they someone went and actually found you know the plantagenet guy that lives in australia who would you know some people say is actually the rightful king of england oh and, yeah and he's actually a very nice guy there's a great video on youtube you can find it <laughs> and uh you know they found him like living in a neighborhood somewhere in west australia and uh, and he was you know bemused and expressed his uh, his loyalty to the to the House of Windsor, but you know interestingly enough you know so this is actually in a sense the rejoining of the Plantagenet and uh, House of Windsor the House of Tudor House of Windsor are rejoined in this marriage which is this is so it's incredible because you're the only guy or gal that I know I mean I was listening to Anderson Cooper I was listening to Don Lemon. Those guys, you have found this out. Now, look, the royal family has got to know this, right? Of course. So is that the reason? Because there is, if you go to item number three on my website, um, conspiracy theorists revel, I'm sorry, reveal why they think Harry married Meghan Markle so quickly. And um, dot, 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 it isn't for love. Um, this is... I mean, this is this ad, this adds fuel to that idea that this is another part of a plan to bring reconciliation in the royal lines for the throne of England as Queen Elizabeth is about to move on to her next adventure. Yeah, ding, ding, ding. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not totally far out to think that this has been planned as opposed to because the story out there is, you know, absolutely, you know, storybook princess, you know, Meghan Markle, you know, American actress, and they go through her whole long history and all that. And then she goes on this blind date through a friend of hers with Prince Harry and things click. And next thing, I mean, he, he just proposed to her with a ring in November and it's right. now May. I mean, it, it, I, I believe that Diana and um, um, Prince Charles knew each other for, what, 10 years before they uh, 
got married and she was only 19 when they got married, but it was a very long and, and uh, William and, and uh, what's her name? I can't think of her name. Um, they knew each other a long time. But Kate this, Middleton. Yeah, Middleton. Thank you. Kate Middleton. This has been like overnight, like blink and suddenly there's this incredible, spectacular, you know, television thing with millions of cameras and drones and great color and great pageantry. And, you know, everyone's lost in that and they're missing the underlying thing. Because not only, I mean, this is the thing you and I were talking about briefly, I guess, what last night. She's still an American citizen, which means all of their children will be by birthright under the Constitution American citizens. Well, and there, there are some... There's some evidence that she's intending, there's some reports that she's intending to become a British citizen. Okay. Couldn't she have dual citizenship? Would you have to renounce your American citizenship? I mean, you don't have to do that to get another uh, passport, that kind of thing. I'm not really familiar with the Royal House rules, but my my suspicion would be that, that, you know, they wouldn't necessarily go for a a dual. You know, she's also related to Winston Churchill and, and William Shakespeare as well. What? Yeah, this gets, pardon the expression, incestuous. Well, yeah, well, it's a small island. I mean, this is really, really interesting. Over over time, there actually are very few choices. <laughs> wow, I mean, to me, the big surprise was Barack Obama's related to the royal family because on this, on the face of it, you wouldn't say, we didn't think that would be automatically fall out of you know the the closet, but to have two you know, connections to the royal family that are American citizens of high note, high profile, high visibility. Um, and didn't didn't the Queen knight George Bush? Yeah, he was he's a knight commander of the British Empire. Yeah, well so, so he's he's part of I think it's the Order of the Garter, which yeah. is like, you know, an insider. It's a there's a that that particular church is uh, that they got married and is is you know right around where the order of the garter ceremonies are take place for for the order of the garter. It's basically an insider. Okay, which okay, brings ins- I'm, we don't have a lot of time because I want to you know not not overlap on Chandra's time coming up here very shortly. So here's the sixty four million dollar question: Is Donald Trump connected to the royal family? Genetic- I couldn't find it. I couldn't find it. Wow. I, looked, I spent about 30, 40 minutes, you know, going back to his uh, connections, you know, in Germany. And, you know, there may be a connection uh, because, you know, his family is sort of from uh, uh, from uh, Kallenstadt or Kallstadt, I think it's called, mm-hmm. in Germany. And uh, whether there's a connection back there through the Saxon Coburgs, I kind of doubt it because the, the Trumps are, were really trades people. They were heavily involved in even in the early days in in uh, in entrepreneurship and hotel and hospitality and and even the, uh, the the his mother's side of the family in Scotland, you know they were fishermen and uh, and uh, you know and you know they were on the Isle of Lewis off the coast of Scotland. Mm-hmm. So the, I so you're you're if if you're leading to the point where you're going to say. <laughs> that, you know, <laughs> yeah. where you're going to say that, you know, that he doesn't have, you know, any sort of royal blood connection, 
I think that's borne out by the facts because I think if Donald Trump was related to royalty, he would have let us know by now. Oh, and you would, you would know you would know that because I visited some of his hotels and they they have a lot of pomp and circumstance in them. So I think that we would know. Well, now that on the face of it is so incredibly intriguing because in a world that's you know getting closer and closer, the idea that this guy really is an outsider. I mean, at the at the at the blood level. Yeah. When we're thinking about things like City of London and, you know, the Empire and all that, this really makes another set of statements, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, it does. And the other thing I wanted to point out before we get to the next segment is that, you know, if you think about, uh, you know, the the involvement of the City of London in the slave trade uh, and the fact that Meghan Markle, you know, uh, one side of her family was, you know, related to the Hussies and therefore to the Plantagenet and the House of Tudor. Uh, and you have the other side of the family, you know, that's living on a plantation as a slave. And, you know, you, so this marriage is almost like a, a form of absolution. Isn't it? You know, t- taking place uh, at 19.5. Yep. Right. And, you know, hyperdimensional, you know, in, you know, it, you know it's, circumstances plus the intention of reconciliation as you pointed out then you start to see that there are multiple levels of reconciliation going on in this particular uh, marriage at the at the symbolic level well you know now we're in the process kenti is doing an incredible job of editing our four-hour workshop which is going to go directly through a friend of mine in new york who's got a few you know hundred million dollars here or there so he talks to donald you know regularly um, it's going to get hand-carried directly from him to the President of the United States. This workshop that we did showing how this president could become overnight the most famous, the most historic, the so-called greatest president in the history of the nation by simply turning to NASA and saying, what the hell is all this about? Show me all the stuff you've been keeping secret for 50 years. Now, you saw the workshop last night. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that, you know, he, he, he likes television. He learns a lot through visual information. Um, and uh, he's not much, you know, he does read, but he's not like a voracious reader. He's not a reader like Bill Clinton was. And I think that, you know, he, he certainly likes the big game. You know, he likes the big game. So this, this is the game. You of can't the, get bigger than this. No, this is the, the, the million year game, right? Yep. You know, and so, you know, but I, I actually think that, you know, that Mr. Trump knows more about this stuff than than he, you know, that, you know, people are not allowed to let on when they know. Right. So, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. So, you know, his his uncle was, you know, a, a, a plasma physicist at MIT. And, uh, you know, and he was the guy that, as you know, I think you pointed that out recently, too, on your show. He's the guy that you know, looked at Tesla's papers. I need, we're, we're going to do a show on Tesla. I'm lining up some very remarkable people, including I'm crossing my fingers, crossing my fingers. The great grand nephew of Nikola Tesla himself will be on this show talking about oh my God. his, his great, great uh, uncle. Anyway, the idea that this guy, the uncle of Donald Trump was the, was the physicist that Nikola Tesla's papers were turned over to all of the FBI to go through after Tesla died in what was it, 43, 42, somewhere around there, and that his his nephew now is president 
And he sits in an office where, with a phone call, he can set so many things in motion that we have not seen yet. And now we know genealogically, you know, from your research, that it looks like he's really the outsider. He's not an insider as part of the whole City of London thing. I mean, are we setting ourselves up for when we deliver this incredible four hours that something magical can happen? Well, something magical may happen uh, again, but he's also got to overcome the bureaucratic inertia and the Brookings report. So, you know, I mean, there's all this institutional pressure. Uh, you know, the government is really good at holding on to information and not sharing it, you know, even though that information technically belongs to the people, right? So well, but, it, but, a, but, but in this case, all he has to do is pick up the phone and call Bridenstine, who is his new NASA administrator, handpicked, and say, I want to see this stuff day after tomorrow here in the Oval Office. Yeah, in one of his speeches, he talked about how, you know, we, we have all these technologies that are on the bench right now. We need to bring them out into the open, basically. Well, he said so that he said that in his inaugural address, which was very bizarre yeah. because it was both incredibly negative, and there were glimmers of really positive stuff, like this was one of the things, you know, new science, technology, and all that. Yeah, did you see the soldiers march in and stand behind him during the inauguration? If you haven't, you should go back and look. When he starts talking about giving the government back to the people, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, all these soldiers come in from <laughs> behind him, and they are all standing behind him. <laughs> It's on tape. It's on Google. You can go Google it. <laughs> you go look at it. Yeah. Okay, we got we got a couple minutes here. Actually, maybe one minute. Um, let's do a little preview. Um, Chandra's waiting in the wings. I just saw his Skype light up, so he's up and he's awake, and hopefully he's having coffee. Um, you read his paper. Give me a kind of an overview. What do you think of his paper? Well, it was actually a whole group of people, like twenty or twenty-five. Right. Uh, esteemed scientists and it's really a review paper bringing together all the research in various aspects of of uh, panspermia which is the uh which comes from ancient greek uh and it literally means you know life came from every from from elsewhere or, or life is everywhere literally is what that means and so uh the the paper really sort of brings together all of the research it talks about you know the origin of uh the Cambrian explosion and how the Cambrian explosion, which was, you know, you know, 500 million years ago, 540 million years ago, there was all of a sudden this major explosion of life on earth. And, uh, and that's also when retroviruses appeared and retroviruses are unique in the sense that they can actually change uh, the, the genetic code of the creatures that are infected with it. And so, you know, there's, there's this whole sort of like, now there's a model to understand the Cambrian explosion. Mm. And then they also talk about bacteria living on the space station. Uh, and, and they also talk about, you know, what, uh, they talk about, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, certain kinds of life, like the tardigrade, which is little tiny creatures. Tell you what, hold it there. Able, we are at the yeah. top of the hour. <laughs> Presaging things to come. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. And when we come back, Chandra Wickrama Singh. And the idea that life may not have originated here at all. We shall return.
While we got a couple minutes here, let me remind you what I was just talking about with Kelly. We have this extraordinary opportunity to finish the editing on this four-hour workshop where we looked at structures on the moon, on Mars, even on Pluto. And from five or six diverse perspectives, researchers who have been looking at this now for decades, we put together for our membership for Club 19.5, and it turns out now for this current president of the United States, um, something pretty special. And we're editing like crazy. Kinthea is working literally day and night to get this in shape so we can send it off to my friend in New York and get it into the president's hands as soon as possible. Now, we need some help with this. Editing is not cheap, particularly frontline editing with software and nonlinear programs and all this. So we need some shekels. We need some money. If you go to your nav bar on your smartphone or go to the uh, left-hand side of the uh, uh, webpage on, on the computer, you'll see a donate button there. Please send us what you can. This is an incredible moment in history. We can really make a difference. And we're going to be sending the president, in addition to our research, we're all going to be sending him this paper by Dr. Wickrama Singh and his colleagues so that he has a kind of a context to see that this is part of a very long historical movement of science away from, shall we say, planetary isolationism to where we're part of a larger a larger venue, a larger biology, a larger cosmic interconnection that up until now has been theorized. But now we have data. And in a few minutes, we're going to talk about the data on the other side. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll have access to a private chat server that member used to chat about the show during the show, and you will have a direct channel to post a question that will be read on the air to the guest. And you'll have a place to post questions during our open hailing frequencies. We realize that not everyone wants to call in live, and this gives you an easy way to participate in a live show without having to participate. Club 19.5 members can use this private chat to talk about the shows, ask questions, suggest new guests, and I may even pop on from time to time to answer specific questions. Also, the entire bridge crew is in these participating chat channels, so you can interact with them as well. You'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss 
all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.